Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Oh, man, are we glad you're here on this Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim, um, this is not a slow Friday. This is not a Friday where you're scrambling for things to talk about on the Three Martini Lunch. Roger Stone, this is even one of our martinis. Roger Stone, uh, federal court in D.C., just found guilty on seven different charges, uh, from witness tampering to false statements, uh, more false statements, lots of false statements charges here. Uh, the total max could be 50 years. He won't get that probably because it's white collar and so forth. Uh, I assume he'll appeal. President Trump's already uh, rage tweeting about it, saying, why aren't Comey and Crooked Hillary and et cetera, et cetera, also heading to prison. But uh, this is all related to uh, allegations that Stone was uh, in connection with WikiLeaks and uh, uh, he knew what was coming from uh, the, the hacked emails and so forth. Um, Stone was accused, this is Fox News, of providing false statements to the House Intelligence Committee uh, related to WikiLeaks and uh, falsely denied that he had evidence uh, to turn over, so forth. So, uh, Jim, Roger Stone fits clearly in this category of folks like uh, Manafort and Cohen, where you just watch them for 10 seconds and you think they could never do anything shady. And uh, <laughs> now all three of them, pending a, a massive win on appeal here, are, are headed to the slammer. I was going to say, Roger Stone is about, uh, you give him Andrew Lesko's wardrobe and he looks like the Riddler. <laughs> He's... <laughs> Always been this. It's interesting because if you're if you're a conservative journalist, at some point somebody pitched you, "Hey, Roger Stone's in town. Do you want to talk to him?" Uh, and Roger Stone was always like, it's as if he was engineered in a lab to be the subject of look at this wacky, you know, Republican operative uh, uh, profile pieces. You know, the Richard Nixon back tattoo, which I guess the good news, uh, Greg, for old liberals is that they finally did send Nixon to prison. <laughs> uh, in, on the back of, of Roger Stone. But, you know, this was somebody who always was, uh, you know, cultivated this reputation of being a dirty trickster, a guy who operated, you know, if inside the law, just inside the law, who bent the rules if he didn't break them and all that stuff. Look, this is not a great reputation. In fact, there was every, you know, all of these, guilt, guilty on all counts is not good. I think the maximum sentence is 50 years. And Roger Stone is not a spring chicken. Um, this could conceivably be in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, my understanding is that these very first words um, when he heard the sentence, Greg, uh, he was so shocked. His first words were, pardon me? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It wasn't a question. It was a statement. Pardon me. Okay. So. We'll see if the president can wait to, you know, like till the end of the day to not pardon him. <laughs> Trump tweeted out, so now they convict Roger Stone of lying and want to jail him for many years to come. Well, what about crooked Hillary, Comey, Strzok, Page, McCabe, Brennan, Clapper, Shifty Schiff, Orrin, Nelly, Steele, and all of the others, including even Mueller himself? Didn't they lie? A double standard like never seen before in the history of our country. But you know what? That tweet probably won't get the most headlines today as we shift to our first, <laughs> first bad martini. No good ones today. Uh, Marie Ivanovich, the uh, former ambassador to Ukraine and uh, Armenia, and uh, she's got a number of decades uh, under her belt, uh, is the, uh, the Democrats' witness today before the uh, House Intelligence Committee. And for the most part, uh, as this uh, day dawned on the committee uh, floor, Things were looking fairly nice for Trump. As we talked about yesterday, no minds really changed from the Kent and 
and Taylor testimony on Wednesday. Uh, Trump released the transcript of his first call with Zelensky today. No talk about Biden's or investigations or anything like that. Uh, Yovanovitch's opening statement, kind of another Rorschach test. Some see it as a dedicated public servant. Others see it as, uh, how dare you remove me? I've been in this job for a long time. Uh, but then Trump tweets out, everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Then fast forward to Ukraine, where the new Ukrainian president spoken favorably about her in my second phone call with him. It's a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. They call it serving at the pleasure of the president. The U.S. now has a very strong and powerful foreign policy, much different than preceding administrations. So in real time, Adam Schiff decides to bring up these tweets in the testimony this morning. And uh, here's how that went. Clip one. Would you like to respond to the president's attack that everywhere you went turned bad? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I have such powers, uh, not in Mogadishu, Somalia, Somalia, not in other places. I actually think that um, where I've served over the years, um, I and others have demonstrably um, made things better, you know, for the U.S. as well as for the countries uh, that I've served in. And, of course, Schiff has to crank it up to 11, calls it witness tampering, and uh, asks Yovanovitch to confirm that. Notwithstanding the fact that, as you testified earlier, the president implicitly threatened you in that call record, and now the president in real time is attacking you, what effect do you think that has on other witnesses' willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. It's designed to intimidate, is it not? I I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Jim, it's already pretty clear that all the Republicans on that committee uh, don't think this impeachment inquiry is worth the time. Uh, If there's anything negative in her record that uh, could be relevant to this, I'm fairly sure they would bring it up. So what do you make of uh, President Trump trying to basically implode this hearing and instead making himself the story again? I feel like I'm watching two spectacularly ill-informed drunks at the end of the bar argue with each other, where you almost want to jump in and say, no, no, even where I agree with you, you're wrong, and here's where, right? So so first of all... um, Way back in 1993, Bill Clinton takes office, and the first thing is he does, he fires every single U.S. attorney and brings in his own guys. So this was uh, kind of a break from precedent, and a lot of folks said, oh, my goodness. you know." Uh, but then, lo and behold, there were not a lot of U.S. attorneys who were really eager to uh, investigate Bill Clinton. Right? This is, that was a presidential prerogative. The, he has, you know, authority over the executive staff. He does not need to give some sort of... Uh, explanation. You serve at the pleasure of the president. You know, you should, if in his, Bill Clinton's attitude was, and this turned into more or less the standard operating procedure for subsequent presidents. I think the same thing goes for ambassadors. If you have a particular direction, you want to take U.S. foreign policy in, you should dismiss U.S. ambassadors and bring in your own ambassadors as quickly as possible. There's no reason that she had to stay in that office for as long as she did. And yes, the president is correct. He had the authority to fire her, but he didn't exercise it. And he seems strangely oblivious to the fact that career State Department employees may not be on board with the direction he wants to take uh, his the foreign, U.S. foreign policy, in, particularly regarding Russia and Ukraine. I guess he did get uh, John Huntsman to be his uh, ambassador to Russia. Um, you know, this is the famous author, John Huntsman. <laughs> at least that's my theory. Um, but, yeah, so it's one of those things where Trump could have replaced her at any point. He didn't. Lo and behold, he has this particular kind of interactions with the uh, Ukrainian president. She objects and he ends up in this situation. 
Um, I think it's fair to say, but so Trump could have at any point said, you know, I wanted to move policy in this direction. She didn't agree. This was inevitably going to be a point of friction. We could not develop a working relationship. I set policy. She doesn't. And that's that. Um, instead, he goes with the she didn't fix Somalia argument. Um, now, Greg, you know, as far as I'm familiar with State Department employees, particularly the career foreign service, you get started out there. You're mostly working the visa desk. You're basically interviewing people who want to come to the U.S. and see if there's any reason to hold them out. Uh, you're helping U.S. Uh, uh, tourists or people overseas who lose their passport. When you're, when you're starting out in the U.S. State Department, they don't put you in charge of the important stuff. And we've all seen Somalia. We've all seen Black Hawk Down. We know Somalia was a mess long before she got there. It was a mess long after she left. There was not something that one junior State Department employee was going to be able to fix in that country. Trump never goes with the arguments that are strongest for him and that work best for him. Instead, he's got to go for the ones that are just kind of, he just takes whatever's at hand and throws it at the door. As critical as I am of the president, of course, Schiff has to overreach by saying, well, this is witness intimidation. Now, here's the thing. I don't think Trump should rage tweet. Uh, by the way, people objected to that term uh, on Twitter today, Greg, that the, tr- the president doesn't rage tweet. No, I'm, I'm sure he's just doing yoga breathing exercises as he sends out each one of these things. But the president, uh, you know, does this and Schiff says it's witness intimidation. Well, first of all, if you don't know the president is an angry... <laughs> vindictive guy who likes to lash out at people who cross him by now. I assume you just haven't been paying attention for, for the last three years. But the second thing is that, so let's say you're the U.S. president and one of your empl- one of the federal government employee has decided to come out and testify to Congress in, in a hostile way to you. Does the president's First Amendment rights just kind of evaporate there? Like I, I know witness intimidation is a real thing, but I don't know if you could say what uh, what the president could say that would not be considered intimidation in some way or another if it, that was that was critical. And so I don't I think that's going another bridge too far. I don't know about you, Greg, I, this entire process of impeachment, I've got nobody to. Root. You know, we often say that uh, all the Democrats have to do is not be insane and they can't do it. All Trump has to do right now in this process is nothing and he can't do it. So. I was going to say, every couple of minutes, Greg, there is this tweet that is just flying at you as fast as it can, like it's a helmet from Miles Garrett. <laughs> Aren't you glad he doesn't play for the Jets? At least well, he's got that. <laughs> he's, he's suspended for the year at least. So, uh, yeah, he's not playing for anybody right now. Whole different story. All right, let's get to our second bad martini now. And, uh, Jim, we've talked about these guys uh, a few different times now in the past week. In fact, it was just last Friday. Man, that seems like a long time ago that Michael Bloomberg uh, filed papers in Alabama, and now he's a quasi-presidential candidate. Deval Patrick, we talked about him yesterday, voice notwithstanding, still running for president. And um, he is uh, considered to be perhaps uh, uh, making a play for the heir to the Obama legacy. We'll see how that plays out. But as you point out at the top of today's Morning Jolt, Jim, Neither of these guys ought to be getting much traction for anything, uh, particularly in the party that claims to be the party for women. Um, You've got Michael Bloomberg making uh, horrific comments to women over the years from uh, inappropriate office sexual innuendo innuendo to telling a pregnant woman allegedly to kill it uh, and uh, all sorts of other problems. And then Deval Patrick used the power of his office to try and help out a brother-in-law accused of something very serious. So... uh, uh, explain how you uh, attract all this down and what it means for this race. Yeah, it's, it's a twofer um, for the last two candidates who jumped in there. I, let's, we'll start with Bloomberg. Because um, I remember a couple of years ago, I mean, look, this is a guy who's been flirting with the idea of running for president, sometimes as an independent, 
sometimes as a Democrat since, you know, 2006, right? So we're, we're now in our, well into our second decade of, of Mike Bloomberg's speculation. And I remember a couple of years ago speaking to a young woman who was, you know, let's say center left, uh, not, not a crazy lefty, not a socialist. She said, oh, I really wish Mike Bloomberg would run for president someday. And this was very much a really kind of response for me. And she's like, oh, he really seemed to have done a good job of uh, running New York City. She lived in the northern New Jersey area. So she presumably had some familiarity with how things were going in the city. And, she, you know, I knew she was, you know, nominally pro-gun control. That didn't surprise me. And thus she wouldn't have the objections that I did. But I kind of went down the list of, of all the different ways that he kind of, you know, it was more than a little bit hypocritical. Like it's not, you know, he's, he's vehemently opposed to private ownership of guns. And, you know, he walks with around with private armed guards everywhere he goes. She was only vaguely familiar with that. Uh, she knew about the soda ban and thought it had good intentions. I pointed out that like, you know, Starbucks things, which are drank by yuppies and wealthy people like her, were not, were perfectly fine, but it's only the large sodas that are drank by poor people. That's the sort of thing we want to ban. And then the third example was he wanted to ban dancing, which is the sort of thing you get straight out of like Footloose. Um, <laughs> but honestly, honest to goodness, if you have people dancing in a bar and you are not a licensed dance floor, the cops will shut you down under Michael Bloom because apparently they've got like, I'm trying to get my head around what made you decide to enforce this rule other than the fact that you're John Lithgow in Footloose. Uh, what makes you find, you know, unlicensed dancing to be the major, you know, menace of our time. I do know there are certain Protestant sects who are very upset about uh, premarital sex because they say it can lead to dancing. For all of our evangelical listeners out there, you know I love you. I tease because I love. But anyway, uh, so Bloomberg just had this nanny state mentality. And he, there's all these cases where he does not believe these rules should apply to him. They should apply to all the unenlightened folk out there. Well, it's not, you know, again, a lot of the anecdotes in this New York Times story coming from the late 90s before he ran for president in 2001. Um, but even by almost every standards, look, even this was long before Me Too, you weren't supposed to talk to your female employees that way. You were not. This is just obnoxious. It's not just crass. It's not joking around. It really was the sort of thing that made you that would make uh, any female uh, employee feel uncomfortable. And as I put it in the jolt today, Greg, I mean, if he said this to uh, your wife, your girlfriend, your mother, your sister, your daughter, Greg, I don't know about you. I just I just want to reach down and punch him. Uh, you know, you'd have to reach down because he's a very short guy. But nonetheless, <laughs> you know, uh, no, he's just a, so it's just an obnoxious jerkiness to to his treatment. And oh, by the way, there are a couple, quite a few anecdotes that suggest that while he's a you know he's softened a bit in the years. Uh, that he's not, you know, warm and fuzzy and all that stuff. I have a working on a corner post about the all these wonderful billionaires we get running for president. And I'm sure there are humble, soft-spoken, kind billionaires out there, but they don't seem to be the ones that choose to run for president. So Bloomberg's about Deval Patrick. Uh, I would urge people to read The Jolt. There are other articles written about this this week. I'll try to summarize it really quickly. Deval Patrick's brother-in-law, back in the early 90s, pled guilty to spousal rape, moves to Massachusetts, there's a discussion about whether uh, he needs to register as a sex offender because of his guilty plea out in California. The local uh, authorities determine, yes, he does. They tell him to do it. He objects. Uh, and eventually, Deval Patrick steps in and fires the person who told Deval Patrick's brother-in-law that you have to register as a sex offender. I kind of can't believe this is the sort of thing like that really should end somebody's career. Because seriously, if you're the governor, you should not be intervening about legal decisions about your brother-in-law. Um, Deval Patrick did. Apparently... Most people in Massachusetts either never heard about this or never thought it was that big a deal. And then many years later, a couple of years ago, this brother-in-law then went out and committed rape again. He was convicted on two counts. This is the sort of thing that should flat out end Deval Patrick's presidential campaign. 
um, an egregious uh, conflict of interest and with the worst possible results. Some people are saying, oh, this, this is Willie Horton. Um, I, I think it's even worse, though, Greg, because, I mean, Willie Horton with Michael Dukakis was a really bad idea enacted out of some sort of general principle of forgiveness or, you know, rapists or whatever, whatever there. This one was clearly intervening on a family member's behalf because Deval Patrick was convinced his brother-in-law couldn't be that bad a guy. And Deval Patrick was extraordinarily wrong for that. And a woman paid the price for it. Absolutely despicable. And of course, uh, the party affiliation was different. You'd probably be hearing a lot more about that and probably wouldn't have resulted in a presidential campaign or even a governorship. The primary is young, Greg. There are a whole bunch of Democrats who want the world to hear about that. (laughs) That's true. All right. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, we need to end on a lighter note. We've got uh, football players swinging helmets at people. We've got impeachment going on. We've got Roger Stone's conviction. We've got uh, nasty details in the past of Bloomberg and Patrick. So let's just cleanse the palate and have some fun at the expense of Michael Avenatti, shall we? Uh, for those of you who don't remember, of course, he was the uh, attorney for Stormy Daniels, was ubiquitous on cable news. He was loved at CNN and MSNBC. In fact, uh, this is still one of my all-time favorite clips uh, at the end of Reliable Sources. Brian Stelter uh, explaining why uh, he actually took Avenatti's brief presidential bid seriously. Looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. Of course, that was uh, a little over a year ago, right around the time that Michael Avenatti was trotting out Julie Swetnick, the one that was accusing Brett Kavanaugh of gang rape and spiking the Kool-Aid at uh, parties back in the 80s and in uh, suburban Maryland outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah, good times. Uh, Well, Michael Avenatti's run into some tougher times lately. He's facing a lot of criminal charges on things. He's not on cable news anymore, but he was a clue on Jeopardy. Lawyers, 800. This lawyer's star rose while repping Stormy Daniels, but fell after he was accused of trying to extort millions from Nike in 2019. His name, quickly forgotten, obviously, Michael Avenatti. Ah, uh, the delicious little aside there from Alex Trebek. So completely forgotten by these really smart people on the show. And Alex gets in a dig. Uh, Jim, uh, it is amazing how quickly fame evaporates. Who? Um, I can't wait until Avenatti decides to sue Jeopardy. I should say on Twitter, he will threaten to sue Jeopardy. I don't think he'll ever actually find it. He's got his own issues, getting uh, two more indictments, or I guess he was trying to, it was extort Nike or something like that. So that's that's bad. You know, a couple, about a week or two ago, my son's urge finally got me to sit down and watch the Pixar movie Coco uh, about the little, little boy in Mexico who discovers a, connection to the land of the dead in the day of the dead it's full of us and i hate to say this you know i went there saying oh god here comes the tearjerker uh, i'm not saying i cried greg uh but i will say that the it was very dusty in the room uh, mm. towards the end when he sees all of his relatives and a big theme of the idea is that as long as people remember you you're never really gone right we think about all of our relatives all those who've passed before us we know we try to do good things with our lives and, you know, hopefully our kids will remember us. Hopefully we live long enough or we meet, you know, we spend time with our grandkids. That's kind of the tapestry of time, right? And this kind of knowledge that all of us in one way or another, almost all of us will someday eventually be forgotten. But, you know, after enough generations pass and, you know, what we did 100 years from now becomes not so relevant and 120 years from now and so on. I just take great joy in the fact that Michael Avenatti is now not remembered less than a year from when he was everywhere. He's on fantastic pace to not be remembered uh, by anybody anytime soon. Boy, that's 
if anybody had that coming, Greg, you know, he's up there. I don't know if we have a we don't have an award for a clip of the year and wasn't even from this year, but that Stelter Avenatti clip is just evergreen gold. Uh, I could play that over and over and over again. But uh, please do, Greg. And I say that, you know, Brian Stelter every now retweets me. He says uh, he he's a fan of the newsletter and and all that. And Greg, what, what's the appropriate way to deal with that when <laughs> someone you are not particularly fond of and don't think is doing a terribly great job, doesn't have great news judgment, in my mind, really shouldn't be hosting a show called Reliable Sources, <laughs> uh, or at the very least should not so regularly get invite Dan Rather to be on his program. Um, but, he, but he likes me, and he, like, he likes my stuff, and he retweets it, and so I have to have this, you know, this, this attempt semi-gracious, oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> what if you've I... ever seen the, the, the gif of Jonah Hill given the, you know, Cut it, cut it off, <laughs> neck gesture, and eh, it's not working. You know, every time, every time Stelzer says, "Oh, great stuff from Jim," I'm like, eh, stop helping. Don't do that. <laughs> Where have I gone horribly wrong? Is the yeah, I got to double check that. That's something. Something didn't come through right. Well, you're honest about Trump, and sometimes that means criticism. So I guess that's probably where it's coming from. But uh, in any event, Jim, uh, as you ponder <laughs> what that means, that Brian Stelter likes you sometimes. Uh, we will pause for a much-deserved break over the weekend, and we will pick up on Monday. See you then. Well, well, just one last thought, Greg. Yes. If Brian Stelter and Adam Gase were both drowning. Oh, no. And I had one life preserver. <laughs> you would absolutely save Brian Stelter. I'm not even going to fall for this. I'm thinking. <laughs> and I'd probably be thinking for a long time. Probably one of them would get sick. Probably Brian. There you go, Brian. I prefer not to see you drown. That's my kind words in response. Wow. Let, let brotherhood and, and, and <laughs> happiness and harmony reign. I don't want him dead. All right. On that note, uh, the, implication, <laughs> the, the implication about Adam Gase is a little bit troubling, but we'll just kind of let that slide at the moment. Jim, I'm going to assume you don't really want anything bad to happen to him. No, the- <laughs> no. Adam Gase is an offensive genius. He'd figure out a way to get to, uh, to get the land. Oh, he's offensive. All right. Uh, Jim, I'll see you Monday. <laughs> See you on day. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. We told you it's going to be a uh, fun-filled, crazy Friday. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, if you don't already subscribe, please do. Leave us a nice review, despite our uh, sometimes wishes for things to happen to various people. Gase isn't giving us one. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend. See you Monday at the Three Martini Lunch.